Alright, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Open up to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Now, uh, we're kind of backtracking a little bit here. We're going to, really, we're going to get to a couple of verses ahead there in a second. But, but I want you to start in 5.18 because it's going to build kind of the context of what we're going to get into today. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a phrase as it related to this section of Ephesians, right? It's this German phrase, Haustoffel, right? And I'm not German, so I can't say it quite right. It's probably like, Geschweiten unten Ustaffel, or something like that. Uh, you know, a guy from Jersey would be like, Ustaffel, it's a Danish, you know. But it's, it's not a Danish. It is a phrase that Luther used to describe what he called the house table. All right? And when Luther was looking at this passage in Ephesians, he, he thought, you know what, of everything that is foundational to the Christian life, perhaps at the core, outside of the worship of God and the centrality of the gospel, is this idea right here of the house table. It is from the house table that the Christian culture emanates. It's from the house table that the distinctiveness of the Christian life, this newness in Christ, is displayed and grown and matured. It's the house table that shapes the shaping of culture, right? That was sort of the way he envisioned it. Now today, what we refer to as the house table is things like parenting or marriage, Right? And we kind of just simplify it down to those topics. Marriage and parenting, it's what we learn, it's what we do. And at some levels, we learn about marriage and parenting at sort of the practical level, right? How to communicate, how to use certain standards and ways of parenting with your kids and that kind of thing. And all of that is good, but there is a deeper set of values to this topic and to the house table that we want to explore and understand. Now, as we start into this, I, I want to tell you something candidly about marriage and about parenting, all right? I mean, if you got up after I said this, you, you, you've got enough right there. You could leave. I'm not encouraging you to do it, but you could if you wanted to, as soon as I let you know a simple truth about both of those topics, marriage and parenting. Here's the simple truth. Marriage and parenting is the longest, most sustained trial of your entire life. You are welcome. You can go now, right? So... <laughs> I'm just going to level with you. That is just the truth. It is a long, sustained trial for husband, for wife, for parents, and yes, even for the kids, all right? We parents are a sustained trial for our kids. Now, here's the good news. James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you endure trials of various kinds. Especially the kind that last 18 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 75 golden trial, right? Trial. Now, here's, here's, here's my thing. If you want an easy life, a happy life, an emotionally unentangled life, stay single. Stay single. Don't procreate, all right? You got a maid. That's going to be easy. All you have to do is wake up in the morning and go, ah, Pop-Tarts or yogurt. You know I mean? Like, that's the extent of kind of the challenges when you wake up. So if you want to serve Jesus in an unencumbered way, singleness is great. Paul even said that. But if you want to be like Jesus, if you want your character shaped, if you want to be on the anvil of change, if you want to truly be challenged, have your narcissism challenged, your self-centered universe challenged, oh, by all means, get married. By all means, have children. Because those two things will shape you, challenge you, chisel you more than anything else. Now, I don't say all of that to say that marriage is a drag. I don't say that for that reason at all. Matter of fact, in about two weeks, Ellen and I will be celebrating 23 years of marital bliss, right? It's awesome. I love that. Yes. Mostly due to Ellen, all right? So, she's amazing. She's amazing. Right? But in that 23 years, I guarantee you, uh, I have been 
man, I have been confronted by my personality. I've been confronted by my temperament. I've been confronted by my shallow disposition at times. All of those things are confronted in the spirit of marriage because, again, it is a sustained trial that works out all of the garbage in our lives because what it does instantly is it puts us in the context of submission. It puts us in the context of service. It puts us in the context where suddenly it's not just about me, it's about somebody else who is equal to me or somebody who is uh, centered in my world with me, somebody that I am to invest myself fully into, whatever it is. And so that changes, that changes everything. That is the house table. That's what we understand. Now, to understand this a little bit better, we start in verse 18, right? And we start there because I want us to understand that what we're going to talk about today is not going to be accomplished because we take a checklist and start checking it off. That we take the list of how to be a good husband, good wife, good kids, good parents, and we go, I'm just going to do the list. No, we need something beyond ourselves. We need divine help to do it. That's why Paul says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. What we're going to look at today requires the Holy Spirit to work in us in such a way that we obey, not because we're following just a list of prescribed rules, but because we are connecting with the living God that makes it possible for us to do this. And so it starts with being filled with the Spirit. And he says, man, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right? Got this song in your heart. That leads into verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. Right? So when you're filled with the Spirit and you're in a loving marriage that is challenging your character, there are going to be times where it's tough and rough and difficult and exposes your stuff. And you know what? You can still give thanks. Because you're walking in the Spirit. He's put a song in your heart. So we give thanks always in the Spirit for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence or literally even fear, right? So it's a fear of disappointing Christ. It's a fear of the discipline of Christ. It's a fear of distance from Christ. All of those things would be true. And it's all about submission. And notice again who it's submitting to. Whatever we're about to read is all about submitting to Christ. All of it. Right? So it's not about um, just kind of grin and bear it. It's about saying, man, I love him so much. I want to do what he wants me to do, and I want to do it in the way that he has given me to see it accomplished. So I want to drill this into our minds that it's all about submission to Christ. Now, how does that play at the house table? Well, I want to be very clear. Today, I'll be very unapologetic. I will say things that some people go, why did he say it that way? I'm like, because it's the best way to say it. All right, so, warning you. All right, so... Here's what I'm going to say unapologetically. In the Boswell home, there was one person that sits at the head of our table. Right? Right here, the head. There's only one person that sits here. The person that sits here is Jesus. It's Jesus. Because that's really what Paul is getting at here. Right? Everything is in reverence for Christ. So when you think about your family table, I mean, a lot of things happen at tables, profound things, right? Communion happens at a table. The very building block of all culture happens at a table. And at our table, as Christians, now if you're not a Christian, this whole thing is different, right? I'm not going to impose the Christian table on a non-Christian person. But for the Christian, this Christian table, this house table, Jesus sits at the head of the table. So every day we should pull up the chair and say, Jesus, here, you're the head of this home. You're the head of this home. And so I want to pull this chair out. This is your chair. And you, you handle all of this. You govern all of this. You lead all of this. You're the example of all of this. You're the reason for all of this. He's the head of our home. And we need to lock that in because everything we're about to look at, if we don't lock that in, we're going to be, oh, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. I don't understand. So we have to agree that He is the head of our home. Now from there, what I want you to understand is everything I'm about to say is going to be dubbed the traditional view of the home. Now what some people call the traditional view, I like to call what the Bible likes to call the biblical view. It's a biblical view. Now sometimes we say traditional, and we go, oh, traditional is old, which means traditional is bad. That's not true. Sometimes traditional is traditional because it's tested, it's tried, it's true, it works, it's steadfast. 
And in this case, we're not just looking at something that's traditional, but like I said, biblical. And here's what you got to understand about Redemption Church. Um, there's two kinds of churches. I've shared this before. There's churches that are all about people, and there's churches, like what it says on my shirt, it's all about Jesus. Now, churches that are all about people will take this book and say, you know what, some of the stuff in this book doesn't sit well, it's kind of offensive, people don't like it, people don't welcome it, people don't want to hear it, people are going to take issue with it, so don't teach those parts. And there's some churches that make sure to just navigate past certain things. And then there's churches that are all about Jesus where we say, you know what, whatever's in this book is what's true. Now, I've said this before, I'll say it again, not everything in this book I like. There's some of the stuff in this book I do not care for, and guess what, the book wins. The book wins. I don't win, right? The book wins. And so we want to maintain a biblical, traditional view of the house table. But as we do so, I, w- I want to bring a little bit of a, a challenge, because I know in doing this, um, we'll say, well, you know, we're in a different culture now. It's a culture of reinvention. It's a culture of uh, wanting to be happy versus wanting to be holy. It's a culture where we advocate our rights more than we advocate doing right things, right? That all happens in our culture. And so even in the context then of the family table, the house table, um, there's going to be a tendency to go, ah, I don't know, that, that just seems old, archaic, doesn't work. But here's the questions I want us to ask before we get underway. Has all of our new ways of approaching family caused divorce to decrease or increase? Are all of the new ways of doing family, would we say that the state of marriage seems stronger in American culture or seems weaker in American culture? Does God seem like He's more the center of Christian homes or less like the center of Christian homes? Do our kids seem more adjusted, secure, and polite than they used to? Do we see the absence of abuse, the absence of arguments, the absence of fighting, the absence of nagging? But we say infidelity is on the decline, fidelity is on the increase. See, when, when we just ask those questions of ourselves, uh, most of us are going to look and say, yeah, man, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it's going the right direction. I'd say, you're right, we reinvented the home and it doesn't seem to be going the right direction. By God's grace, I am grateful that He's given us something that gives us direction for the home, the home table that is traditional, that is biblical, that is by design. Something that gets us back on track. I say all that because, again, this is really what the church needs to do. The church needs to return to the table, right? To the table where we seek to be holy, healthy, and honestly, from that, happy. Yeah, I, I, I can guarantee you in my life, my own home, when I'm choosing to realize and live under the context of Jesus sits at the head, man, it's different. There is this quest of we want to be more of what God wants us to be and God is more the center of the home and from that, our family's happier. When that begins to fragment, we get agitated, we get irritated, it, it doesn't seem right. It's because he's made a design that is so perfectly tailored to the Christian life. And so Jesus sits at the head of the table. He is the head of the home in that sense. But then underneath all of that, we see that we all submit. We all submit unto the Lord. But here's the thing. We don't all submit in the same way. Alright, catch that. We all submit to Christ. We all submit to the Lord. But we don't all submit in the same way. In fact, in this text, it's interesting. It'll say things like husbands... The way we do this is as the Lord. And then it will say, to fathers, we do this by teaching and instructing of the Lord. To wives, it will be to the Lord. And for kids, it's in the Lord. I mean, we're all submitting, but we're all submitting differently. We're all submitting to the head of the table, who's Christ. And so this morning, I want to start with the men. The men. And here's why. If you look at this passage we're going to look at, Um, It's interesting. Uh, More than half of the verses are directed toward the men. Nine and a half verses are to husbands and fathers. Three and a half are to wives and three are to kids. Men, we are the primary target of Paul's words in Ephesians here. right? And so we want to absorb that, own that, just realize that that's going to be critical. And so when Paul starts to go into this, he sees that Christ sits at the head, and then we as men, this is, this is my chair right here. Right? This is where I sit, so Jesus sits there, 
I sit here. And the Bible then says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. I want you to notice what my mirror is. I want you to notice who I look at to see this accomplished, right? I, I, I don't look at other men or fathers. I can learn some things from that, but that's not my model. My model is as Christ loved the church. Now here's what's interesting, guys. Um, in verse 23, it says that the husband is the head of the home. And I would say in a certain sense, the husband is head in the home. Jesus is head of the home in the truest sense. But what's interesting is even though it says husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the commandment here isn't to exercise your headship. The commandment here is to exercise love. Right? This is a profound thing that we want to understand because it's a love rooted in sacrifice. And this is huge for the culture that Paul writes to. The Roman culture would never think, you know what, here's what a man should do. A real man should be willing to lay down his life and die for his wife in brutal sacrifice. They would never pitch that. They would say, die for Rome, die for the Republic or the Empire. They would never say, yeah, you should sacrificially die for your wife. Paul rolls in and says something revolutionary. He says, man, you handle it different, man. You lay yourself down for your wife just as Christ did for the church. See, what this means is that we have authority, but our authority is redemptive. Headship is given to the husband so he could sacrificially love his wife and administer that. And so we men, we model the most important thing in our homes. We model looking at Christ, what Christ did on the cross. So when we're sitting here as husbands, we're going, man, how do I, how do I lead my home? What do I, what do, I do? What does Jesus want of me? How do, I, how do I bring the context of Christ to things? Jesus says, well, just look at me and what I did on the cross, and if you mirror that, you'll do well. You'll do well. So you just grab the Gospels. You start looking at the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. How Christ went to the cross. How Christ handled the cross. How Christ reacted when those who hated Him were jesting and mocking while He was on the cross. You go, man, that is the way of the husband. Right? More than anything else, this is where we're focused. I would say even more than our wife, more than our kids, we focus on Christ. The more we focus on Christ, the more the attitude and heart and disposition of Christ becomes ours and we administer that. In fact, what we're going to see in this text this morning is there's this relationship at the table. Jesus is at the head. I'm here to watch the head. And then he speaks truth into my life and he expects things of my life in such a way that I give some to my wife and some to my kids. You're going to notice in the text there is nothing about how mothers are to treat their kids. Something about parents, but it doesn't speak to moms, but it's going to speak to dads. Right? So, husbands, certain way to the wife. Dads, certain way to the kids. Because it's all related to Christ. Right? That's the house table. That's what we own. And so Paul is saying, husbands, this is how you do it. This is how you love. This is how you give yourself. This is how you sacrifice. And I want you to understand, again, the model. Think about Jesus dying for the church. He died for a church that hated him. The church hated him. We all hate God until God opens our hearts. So man, the church hated him, but he loved the church. And Jesus will always love the church more than the church will probably love him. And Jesus keeps loving a church that is often unlovely or unappreciative or distracted. So we say, all right, well men, how do we love our wives? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. See, this kind of love is a self-giving love that takes its greatest joy in the joy of its bride and her good. And that's what Jesus does. Just goes all in. All the way. And so husbands, when we think about the house table, that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. I think about this. I've had the kind of the bittersweet um, emotions going through this about three weeks ago. Um, got a call just going into an elder meeting that my grandmother had passed away. And, uh, and so I called my grandfather the next day. And they'd been married 62 years. And this dude's just a stud. Just a stud. I've shared the story about him before where, you know, he couldn't even walk, but he was pushing her wheelchair around the house on his knees so she could get around. He's always making sure she looked beautiful if anybody was coming over. And his whole mission was simple. His mission was simple. I, gotta, I, I just want to get her through to the end. Once she crosses the finish line, I'm good to go. 
but I'm going to love her, I'm going to sacrifice her for her, I'm going to care for her. Now listen, my grandfather was not some whipped guy that just did whatever his wife told him to do. He wasn't some guy that was afraid or weak or mild or whatever else. This guy was a man's man who knew how to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Knew it. And so the next day after she passed, I gave him a call and I just said, dude, you know what? When I grow up, I want to be Art Boswell. I just want to be Art Boswell because you, you did it. You got it. That's how we love. We love with the goal in mind. And that's what Christ did. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Listen, when we go to the altar and we say, I do, we didn't say, I do, where's my lazy boy? We didn't do that. Right? We said, I do promise and commit to go with you, to help you, to build you, encourage you, love you, date you, romance you, invest in you. I'm going to carry you on to completion as Christ does the church. That's what we do as men. That is our calling. Anything less than that motivation misses the pinnacle of what we're called to as husbands. And so Paul says, man, men, Love your wives just like that. Give yourself completely for her. He goes on in verse 28, says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I love these words, words like nourish. means literally to feed. Feed your wife physically. Feed your wife emotionally spiritually i mean think about that just like that even the spiritual thing because here's what often happens uh in homes especially christian homes jesus sits here right he's the head and men we sit here and we're supposed to be taking in and creating a spiritual context for the home right pouring in spiritually to our wives pouring in spiritually to our kids but here's sometimes what happens the wife sets more of the spiritual tone than the husband now that i'm not taking anything away from the wife praise jesus the wives do what i am saying a little bit lovingly but confrontingly is we as men we should be tone setters especially in the spiritual realm because what's it say here man just as christ did so we do so we look at jesus and we bring the context of spiritual climate spiritual vitality spiritual health we feed the home in that way he also says cherish that literally means keep them warm right make the investment emotionally right that goes back to romancing our wives talking to them dating them protecting our time together with them because again it is so easy to get married and then within just a couple of years it's be like oh we're kind of roommates you're doing your thing i'm doing my thing you've got your friends i got my shop whatever it is you know it's like because guys we don't have many friends because we are weird and isolate so right so we kind of go these different directions and he was like no 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 man you, you you need to cherish you need to keep your wife warm emotionally feed her physically invest in her spiritually right that's what we do. In fact, in verse 31, he shows her something even more pinnacle. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the thing about our marriages, Christians. They are more of a commemoration of Christ than they are of just companionship. Did you catch that? This relationship, this table me sitting here ellen sitting there christ being the head in the center of it it is way more about a commemoration of what christ did on the cross than just purely so ellen and i can spend our lives together hang out go to the movies do what we do it's commemoration it's also companionship but it's chiefly about showcasing what jesus has done and that's what paul says that is the difference between the christian home and maybe a non-christian home jesus is center and men lead under jesus by leading and loving like jesus and so we love that way whether our wife is sweet or she's bitter happy or sad pleasant or angry hot or frumpy righteous or sinful doesn't matter we come to the whole relationship and we go, all right, how would Jesus do it? How would he do it? How would he do it? How would he treat the church? However he treats the church, 
that's how I'm going to treat her. However he gives for the church, I'm, I'm going to give for her. However he loves the church, I'm going, to, I'm going to love her. And understand, this is less. This is less about her. It's more about him. It's really more about Jesus. I'm not trying to take anything away from a wife or anything away from kids, but I'm saying as a husband and a father under Christ, this is way more about as Christ, unto Christ, to Christ, through Christ, for Christ, by Christ, all in Christ. It's much more about this relationship pouring in and then spilling out because I am submitting to Christ by doing what I do. In this case, firstly, sacrificing for my, my bride. So as husbands, this is what we do. There's also a call, though, to fathers, right? And so it says in verse 4 of chapter 6, so drop down, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, I'd like to say as a father, this is not humanly possible. <laughs> this is not humanly possible. Uh, all I have to do is go and mow the yard in shorts with dress socks and my dress shoes, and they're angered, um, you know. Highly offended. Oh, Dad, I'm glad we live out in the sticks where nobody can see your humiliating legs. Right? Like, not hard to anger your kids. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about simple anger. He's talking about something deeper. In fact, a great word to think about here, and some versions use it, it'll say, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Exasperate. See, that's a deeper thing. Right? And there are ways that we as fathers, we inadvertently exasperate. We can take our kids and we can keep writing them because they're not delivering the way we want them to deliver. Maybe they're not doing well in school. Maybe they're not doing well in sports. You feel they don't keep their promises. They're not committed. They don't have a good work ethic. So you're driving, writing, driving, writing, driving, writing. And after a while, they're just like, man, I feel like I never measure up. I never please you. You're never happy with what I do. And sometimes they're just belly aching, but other times you're crushing them. And you have to be aware as a parent, am I making my child an idol that performs for other people to look at so I look good as a parent? Or are you really trying to raise one in the Lord in a right way? Am I riding and driving and in the spirit of that crushing them? Because that's how we can exasperate. Sometimes we exasperate our kids as fathers by mocking them, teasing them a lot. We might not think it's a big deal, but we'd be like, oh, you got a girlfriend. Who's your girlfriend? Who's your girlfriend? Smoochie, smoochie, whatever it is. And, right? Like, this is what dads do. And we might think it's all cute and fun and games, but after a while, if we keep doing it, the kid just gets exasperated and then they close down. They don't want to be a part of what you're doing or be around you. Maybe it's manipulating them. Or we give them threats if they don't do this or do that. Uh, this is what's going to happen, but we're not going to really carry through. We're just constantly kind of manipulating. Maybe we yell at them a lot. Maybe they just feel perpetually as though they let us down and they're never going to be what we wish they would be. Those are all ways that fathers exasperate, where we push to the point of breaking, where we leverage disappointment all the time. Right? This was my life, just being transparent. As a kid, I, I felt like I had a father in my life that that's all it was. He would come to let me know when I wasn't measuring up. And after enough of that, you know what happens with a kid? They just shut down. They don't want the relationship. They're prayerful and hopeful that dad doesn't come around. Because that would be a lot easier. Now deep down inside, they love dad, they want dad, they wish they had a different relationship with dad, but dad is just exasperated. Now, I know some of us are probably sitting there going, great, I do this. Why is he saying this? I'm saying it, so hopefully you'll say, great, I do this. Why is he saying this? That's why. Um, I mean that totally seriously, but here's what I mean by that. There's, there's also hope, right? There's forgiveness. There's freedom. There's the example of Jesus to do it different. So I, I don't say this to wag the finger. There are times, I do the same thing. There are times, you ask my kids, they'll say, oh, dad comes home and he's in a bad mood and he's got issues and he's exasperating for us. Because instead of me kind, kind of coming in and lovingly parenting and trying to give them direction, instead I'm just like, do this, do that. You know, and you're not measuring up and they're like, oh, dad's freaking out. Mom, right? Yeah, run to your mom. Mm-hmm, sure, wussies. Yeah, that, that's an exasperating thing right there. See, I told you. It's not hard to do. It's not hard to do as fathers. And so we don't want to exasperate our kids. What's it say? It says, but. 
Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's what this means, dads. More than getting them to obey rules. More than getting them to make sure they always make it to sports and practice. More than making sure they get good grades. We need to bring the Lord to our kids. Men, our home is a little church. You are the pastor. You're the pastor. You bring them up in the Lord. Not just in the rules. Not just in the expectations. You bring them up in Christ. To know Jesus. To think about Jesus. To contemplate Jesus. To seek to please Jesus. To be worried about displeasing Jesus. That is what we want in our kids. We don't just want good kids or compliant kids. We want godly kids and gospel kids who get grace. That's really what we want. That's really what we need. That's really what we need to focus on. In fact, that would be a great quiz for all of us as men is to ask our kids, hey, what do you think is most important to me in our home? What do you think is most important to me? And hear what they say. Because what should be most important to us in our home that they hear is Jesus. And again, the great news is Jesus wants to meet you on that 100%. He wants to meet you there and be there with you to do that. So we do it in Christ. We bring them up in the do's and don'ts in Christ. That's a discipline, right? But that's not about rules. It's about Jesus. We bring them up in instruction, what we believe, why we believe it. We want them to understand the motivation for it, who it's for, not just what they do, but why we do it. Now, I'll tell you why this is important, because uh, in the Christian parenting world, there's two extremes. We're good at either raising prodigals or we're good at raising Pharisees, right? Right? Prodigals are Pharisees, and it's a little bit like my balloon. Anytime I get a chance to use a balloon, I will use a balloon because balloons are awesome, all right? Here's here's the two extremes. Some parenting is like this. Some parenting is very reactive. I just got to keep my kid above average somehow. So we react. Every once in a while, we just bump them, keep them going, right? But then there's not a lot of control here. Right? It's a little willy-nilly. It's very, very reactive, but we're just kind of, I just got to keep them going. So we have these little contact points, try to keep it going. And some parents do that. And you might, you might get a prodigal out of this because there's no real direction. It's just hopeful. But there's other parents who do this. <laughs> right? Some parents are like, no, control. And they're like, it's going to pop. I know it's going to pop. We'll find out. Ooh. Some parents parent like this. Both extremes are dangerous. Because that's not what Paul says. He says, don't exasperate them. But you know what? Just doing this can exasperate them too because they never know what the standard is. They never know what the rules are. They're never quite sure of the expectation too. It's like, well, what was bad yesterday is good today. That can bring exasperation. Men, we can exasperate our kids by how we treat our wives. Right? If we don't love them, care for them, nurture them, that can create all kinds of insecurity for kids and that exasperates them too. Paul would say in all of it, man, no, man, make sure. Make sure. You make the right investment. So you think about the table. Jesus sits here. You're sitting here and your, your kids are here for you to make the Jesus investment. Right? So, so think about it. Just even sitting at the table. I don't know if you're a dinner time table family. But that's a great place for some of that to happen. Ask them, how can I pray for you? Ask them, what is God doing in your life? Maybe you're driving in the car. I'll ask my son that a lot in the car. Hey, what's God doing in your life? Right? Just making that inquiry because that's what we're called to as men to make sure, to ask, to inform, to guide, to elevate. Jesus is first. Now, I know this isn't easy always as men because we're very functional and we're doers and this is a very relational idea. But our kids need it. And so Paul says, Man, dads, this is what you do. And you do it all for Christ. You do it all for Christ. Now, what does he say to the women? Well, to the women, he has an excellent message. Verse 22 of chapter 5. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, what's great is that I don't write the mail. I'm just the mailman. I deliver the mail, right? Like some people are going to go, you know what Pastor Matt said at church? He said, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, that's a quote. I didn't write it. Didn't write it. But I want to tell you, this is a wonderful statement. 
This is a wonderful, beautiful, gracious statement that should be cherished. It should be. What I love about it is that it's straightforward, it's clear, it's concise, and it's liberating. It is actually liberating. Because here's the thing, this is what's really funny, right? So uh, here we are in our home. This is me sitting here, chilling. This is Ellen's seat. She always sits on my right. It's just a Boswell rule. Don't ask me where I got it. We just got it. All right? So she'll be sitting here talking to me. And on this passage, this would be a great example. On this passage, she would say, you know, Matt, what's great about this passage? And I'd say, oh, what, Ellen? What's so great about it? She'd say, "Uh, I only have to submit. You have to sacrifice. I got the better end of this deal, Right? And there is truth to that. Because here's the thing, this text so often kind of in the cultural climate gets contorted to say something it doesn't say. And it gets removed from the overall context. Like people will get all upset. Oh, it tells wives to submit. Nobody ever complains. Oh, and it tells husbands to sacrifice. How offensive, right? And nobody ever does that with it, right? Because it's seen as a housing, a relationship between the two, right? And here's what's interesting. Notice what it says here. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Here's the weird thing about this chair right here. It has way more relationship pointing this way than it does this way. Right? If you start thinking, oh, no, 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 this is about servitude. This is about just being under the weight of the male psyche. Right? No, this is way more about this relationship right here where a wife says, you know what, I want to be what Jesus has called me to be. I want to display Jesus as I'm called to display Jesus just as the husband seeks to look at Christ and display him to his family so the wife looks at Christ so she might display herself to the family see that's the heart of the house table here that's really what he's getting at here unfortunately in the current cultural context there's confusion there's concern there's mischaracterization uh, saying that this says something that it doesn't say so let me break that down really quick first of all understand that the word submission by its definition is a willful submission, right? If it's not willful submission, well, then it's subjugation. Then it's servitude. Paul does not say serve. He does not say be subject to. He says submit to. It's a willful thing. So the wife in the relationship at the table says, I choose submission to my husband because I'm really choosing submission to Christ. It's a different form of submission. Just as a husband submits to Christ by sacrificing, bleeding out for his wife, the wife submits to Christ by submitting to her husband. It's a relationship again. The other thing I want you to notice is that it says it is submit. It doesn't say obey. Right? Later it's going to tell kids to obey their parents. It doesn't tell wives to obey their husbands. It's a different deal. Another thing I want you to notice right here, men, it does not say that a husband can say to his wife, woman, submit. I dare you. I would love to see next Sunday some dude missing his face completely because he went home and said, woman, submit, right? She's going to punch you in the face because she's, she's doing Zumba. She's tough, man. So, right? It does not say you can do that. Now, here, here's what I want to say in relationship to that. It also means wives. It never tells you you can go to your man and say sacrifice. All right? Because sometimes that's what happens. Well, you need to give more. You need to sacrifice more. You need to do more. You need to earn more. Both ways, this is something that each is called to, but you're not supposed to command the other in their calling. Christ commands each one in their calling. We just fulfill calling. All right? Another thing about this is if you look at this passage and you think about your wedding day, all you did was vow to do this anyway. I mean, this is the craziest part. You think about that day. There's the pastor so God is book, Bible, whatever it is, and then you recited vows. And you said, I promise to love, honor, and cherish better, worse, richer, poor, sickness, and health for as long as we both shall live. Both said that to one another. You know what you didn't say in the context of that? I promise to do all of these things provided that they do it too. There was never that. I know that's sort of how it gets treated after about five or six years, right? But that's not what you vowed. What you vowed is outside of sickness or health or he's a jerk or she's sweet or she's mean or he's cruel or whatever, we said, I promise to do this. I promise to love. I promise to honor. I promise to cherish. I promise to put you first. That's what your vows were. That's what my vows were. That's what they were. 
Now, I'm not saying there isn't some deep, dark complication in some of that. I'm certainly not advocating if there's anything physical or violent that you stick around in that context. I'm not saying that, but most of us, that's not our context. And so most of us realize that on that day that we said, I do, we said, I do to sacrificing for you. I do to submitting to you. I do decide to serve you above myself. That's all this is, right? It's mutual submission in different ways. We beat both submit differently, all to Jesus, but to one another too. So that's what happens. And so this is what Jesus calls a wife to. Now notice it says, in everything. And women say, well, is everything, everything. Here's the thing. I'll give you the heart behind this. The heart behind this is that we should try to figure out opportunities more than we try to figure out exemptions. Right? Figure out the opportunities more than we figure out the exemptions. Because that's like last week where it's like, hey, where's the line? Can I get up to the line? I get, want to get right up to the line. It should be the same spirit. Right? So when a wife says, all right, submit to my husband and everything. Jesus, what do you mean by submit to my husband and everything? Jesus' response was and is, in all the ways you can find to do that, the more you do that, the better off you'll be. And likewise, to a husband, when the husband says, Jesus, all right, you want me to sacrifice for my wife, and right now we're not getting along, it's not good, Um, how much do I have to sacrifice? And then Jesus will say, well, I don't know, you ought to just read about the crucifixion, you'll get a good idea. Right? When, When they were laughing and spitting and mocking and all of that, I died for them. So, we all have our example at the head of the table of what we do and how we do it, why we do it. And so that's the heart. And so, wives, when he's forgetful or recollecting, insensitive or caring, writes you a poem or gives you a vacuum, whether he's clueless or clued in, ignorant or listening, sinful or godly, you love him as Jesus has called you to love him, because in doing so, you're loving him. Just as much as the men, when they're sacrificing for you in love, they're loving him. Right? That is the calling. In fact, Paul rounds this out well in verse 33. He says, let each of you as men love your wife as yourself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a good wrap-up because I think it deals with the things that each finds difficult to do. Men are going to find it difficult to truly love their wives on a consistent basis. We'll provide for, we'll give money to, we'll try to create a home and those kinds of things. But sometimes we really struggle to love love, right? To show affection, to be romantic, to invest in those ways. And that's what we need to do, men. We need to make sure we're going out of our way to send a text and write a card and buy a little gift. And Basically, here's the key. You want your wife to know you're thinking about her when you're not around her. Because that's what she wants to know. When she's gone, she's still on your mind and in your heart. That's what she wants to know. And so you want to do the little things of investment and love that says, you know, I just care. I just dig you. I would choose you again and again and again. That is love. And we need to keep doing that, men, because you know what? Here's the deal. Uh, the more we're not romantic, we're just functional, we're just providers, we're just sort of roommates, um, I guarantee you there's another guy waiting in the wings to rob her away from you. There is. And I know that doesn't even sound popular, I, you know, but you know, I, man, I've been pastoring for almost 20 years, I've seen it way too many times to say otherwise. Right? Wives want to be loved, so man, men, love your wives. Paul also says, wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. And I think this is important because this is something that's easy for wives to forget, wives to overlook. They think, well, you know, I'm just being practical and functional and everything else, and so I'm expecting him to be provider and to get the honey-do list done and all these kinds of things. And sometimes it's like, honey, why didn't you do this? I thought you said you were going to do that. You, you said, but, you know, all those kinds of things, right? And you might go, no, 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 I'm not disrespecting. Yeah, because you're not a guy, right? Like, a guy would be like, oh. You know? 
I mean, guys need respect more than they need love. And I know that's a weird deal for women to fathom. They're like, really? Yes. We know we're loved. You said I do. Duh, right? But, but we do need to have that sense of being respected. And if we feel we're not respected, man, that, that, that's, that's a tough place because it does one of two things. It either drives a man to get angry a lot, right? If you want to know if your husband doesn't feel respected, see how much he's getting angry and you might have a good bead on whether he feels respected. Um, the other thing that happens with men is they just shut down. So if your guy shuts down a lot, that might be the other side of it, right? I remember this one conversation I had with a couple and it was at church and uh, I'm talking with them and, and the wife is literally just like, you know, yeah, my husband doesn't do this and he doesn't do this and he's kind of afraid of confrontation anyway. I mean, all this stuff, right? I mean, she's just gutting the guy right in front of me like it's nothing, like it's nothing. I mean, this wasn't like they're in a fight. This is just standard operating fare. And the guy was just like, quiet the whole time looking around i thought man she is she is she has taken him to a point where he feels so disrespected he's just he's just isolated in a cocoon to survive living a life of quiet desperation right i mean just quiet desperation and so paul would say men love your wives wives respect your husbands that's that's the dynamic. And then he's going to say lastly to the kids. To the kids, he says, children, verse 1 of chapter 6, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So this is this seat right here. Right? So the kids have a relationship to mom and dad. Right? It's a relationship of obedience. And notice the word obedience. It doesn't say submit. Right? This isn't like, hey, I get a voice too. Your seat is not a democracy, just so you know. All right? Your seat, what this is, is so right here you got Matt and Ellen, right? And here, if we put it together, this is the United State of Matt and Ellen. All right? And this is, this is where Honor, Emma, and Gray get to sit in the United State of Ellen with Jesus as president. And what they know is that we have nuclear weapons and we're not afraid to use them. That's what this means. And so... <laughs> There's a dynamic in play for all of this that they have to understand. But notice it says, children, right? Obey your parents in the Lord. Every seat at the table faces the head. Every seat at the table faces the head. Nobody is immune to the fact that Jesus is the center of all. And so kids, when you obey your parents, you're doing it for Jesus. More than even your parents, because you might go, you don't know my parents, my parents are idiots. I'm like, yeah, it's because you're 15. You're an idiot, is what it is. You know, but but they, they think that, but the Christian parent and the Christian kid, Christian husband, Christian wife, they should know that this is less about the players, this is more about Jesus. It's way more about Jesus. And so... Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's right. It's a good thing to do. It's proper. It's healthy. It's going to bring joy to your soul, ultimately, in the long run. This is why in verse 2 it says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That first part, obey, is about your actions, right? You obey as unto Christ, because Christ matters. Here it's about your attitudes. Honor them in the spirit of this, this disposition emotionally. It says, you know what, I, I want to hold them in high esteem. Now for kids, it means in the home, you, you have a respectful tone, you do what you're, you're asked to do, you do so in a healthy way. When you're an adult, you continue to maintain that tone. And you may go, well, Matt, you know what, my parents, they're, they have issues. And, and they, are, they, they are not respectable. And I would say that's okay. It doesn't say that you have to uh, see them as respectable. It just says you have to respect them, to honor them. Right? You may not go, I want to model myself after all of that, but you can still say, I'm going to have a tone that is respectful. And the reason is because, again, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. For teenagers, you want to do this so they don't kill you. You can live long, all right? Um, I love teenagers. For all of us, though, there is wisdom, right? To learn the wisdom of those who have gone before us, to learn sensibility, to learn what not to do, 
right? Even to sometimes watch our parents and say, man, I don't know if I want to duplicate that. That's okay to learn that too. As long as the center of all of it is being more like Jesus. Right? Because it all comes back to that. The big idea in this whole section is let Jesus sit here at our family table. Right? And every one of us, dads and husbands, wives, kids, everything, we're all looking at Jesus saying, how would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus do it that way? How can Jesus be glorified in this? How can Jesus be honored in this? How can Jesus be lifted as supreme and first in everything I do? And it's going to go well because in the end, He gets the credit. I'm not saying this whole dynamic is easy or simple. Sometimes it's very complicated. Sometimes it's a whole lot easier to say, you know what, let's just remove this chair and we'll just do this because it's one less party to worry about. Certainly a party with a lot more thoughts than we would have on our own. It'd be an easy thing to do. Another thing sometimes that happens is maybe Jesus is here at the table, but somebody else pulls up another seat, and it's the enemy that says, all of this is archaic. All of this won't work. All of this is just religious mumbo-jumbo. You know, I don't go down this route. You know, and again, let me just sit here instead. I'll let you know what to do. I'll bring idols. I'll bring ideas. I'll bring philosophies. I'll bring modernization. I'll bring a new way of seeing the family. And he does. And then we scratch our heads and we go, man, why is this not working? Why is this not working? Why am I looking for more joy, more happiness, more peace, more contentment? It's because there's somebody other than Jesus sitting in this chair. And I don't know about you, but I know in my own life there's been times where I've said, Jesus, I'll take this chair, I'll put something else in this chair. It's not Jesus. And it never goes well. Never goes well. But when we get out of the chair, let only Jesus be in the chair. And then as husbands, we go, I want to live as Jesus does to my wife. I want to train my children in the ways of the Lord because I love Jesus. And wives say, I want to submit to my husbands because I do so as a tribute to what Christ did for His church and the motivation behind it. And kids say, I want to obey my parents because I love Jesus. Man, there's blessing, there's health, there's holiness. Let's pray together. Jesus, We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this reminder of your word, of your will, of your table. I pray you teach us. I pray that you embed into us your ideal. And I pray that we pursue this, as we said at the beginning, in the spirit. I mean, again, this could be so discouraging if it's not in your spirit. If we don't rely on you to see this accomplished, this is just going to sound like an unachievable work. That's why I go back to the beginning. In the Spirit, may we seek these things in you. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen.